0: It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here with our wrap of the week's political news. This week, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump laid out their economic plans for the country, some more specific than others. We'll also talk, quote, Second Amendment people. And as always, listener mail and what we just can't let go of this week. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter.
1: And I'm Ron Hilving, editor-correspondent.
0: And in case you have trouble telling our voices apart... That one was Ron. We don't always have three ladies in the podcast. That's Ron. That's Ron. That one. Oh. Okay, let's do this. Okay.
1: I am am biting my tongue.
0: (laughs) I am Tamara. I am Sarah. I am Danielle. Mom, dad, sorry you're not going to be able to tell
2: us apart today. We are Caucasian females in our 30s, right? Is everyone in their 30s? Yep. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that's...
1: I'm checking. No.
3: (laughs) Quiet, you. Well...
0: We got binders full of ladies on this podcast. (laughs) And how. All right. So at the beginning of this week, Donald Trump, coming off a very bad week last week, gave a big speech on Monday about economic policy. And we'll talk about that in a second. But true to form, Donald Trump very quickly began making other statements that wiped his economic message off the front pages, the latest of which came at a rally in Florida Wednesday night. ISIS
4: is honoring President Obama. He is the founder of ISIS. He's the founder of ISIS, okay? He's the founder. He founded ISIS. And I would say the co-founder would be Crooked Hillary Clinton. Co-founder, Crooked Hillary Clinton.
2: Sarah, you cover Trump. That is true. What what was he saying? That's yeah, you know, I wasn't at that rally, but the point here, the idea is that Obama's policies, and he often links this to Hillary Clinton as well, since she was Secretary of State under Obama, that, that Obama's policies have led to the creation of ISIS. And that's basically what he's been saying about that since he made this you know, sort of bolder statement calling Obama the founder of ISIS. I don't think this is meant to be taken literally, but to me, it's in line with a lot of things that that Trump tends to say, you know, putting things in in often the most provocative way possible.
1: And that is essential to the general strategy of getting people's attention and simplifying things so that people can really get their tight grip on it. And, uh, You know, I think you can find many Republicans and and others who would say that the rise of ISIS coincides with the withdrawal of the U.S. from Iraq and coincides with Barack Obama's presidency. And you can certainly make a case for the contribution that that policy change after the Iraq war uh, made to the success of this particular group. But uh, to call him the founder... Gets everybody's attention. It's not something everyone's been saying for the last five years.
3: Well, oh, you, you characterize it as simplification, although it's it's a very very particular type of simplification, and it's called hyperbole and very. <laughs> there's oh, there's a word yeah. for it. I'm just saying that like th- this is not pure simplification. This is, as we said, not just provocative simplification. This is over the top simplification, and it not only gets people's attention, but it gets people's dander up. And that's, you know, some would call that dangerous.
0: And
1: everyone's talking about it, and that's the bottom line.
0: Right, that's true. And he was then, of course, asked about it this morning as he made a round of of cable television. Um, here he was on CNBC this morning defending the characterization.
4: How do you think, think, how says, do you think, how why, do you think... Is there something wrong with saying that? Why are people complaining that I said he was the founder of ISIS? I, I'm, I'm wondering
0: how you think that's going to play in some battleground I don't know. I don't states. Know.
4: Whatever it is, it is. Look, Look, all I do is tell the truth. I'm a truth teller. All I do is tell the truth. And if at the end of ninety days I fall in short because I'm somewhat politically correct, even though I'm supposed to be the smart one and even though I'm supposed to have a lot of good ideas, it's okay. You know, I go back to a a very good way of life. It's not what I'm looking to do. I think we're going to have a victory. Uh, But we'll see. I I know. So is he
2: predicting that he could lose? I mean, I think what we're seeing is... The polls ever since the Democratic National Convention have not looked good for Trump. He's slipped dramatically. And I have to think that he is recognizing that. I mean, he talks about polls more than almost anyone and they haven't been good. So he may be sort of coming to terms with the fact that he could lose at the same time. This is very different from what he's been saying. You know, for months, I've heard him say things like, if I lose, this will all be a waste of time. In fact, he just said that in Denver a couple weeks ago.
4: If I don't beat crooked Hillary Clinton, I will consider this a tremendous waste of time, energy and money. Believe me, I'm not looking to be in history books unless it's at the top where we do something great. And that's what we're going to do. So
2: not the first time that Trump has changed his position or said one thing and then said another. But again, the polls aren't looking good for Trump and he's trying to process that maybe. So that was Wednesday. On Tuesday, the day after his big
4: economic speech, he
0: said this at a rally in North Carolina.
4: Hillary wants to abolish, essentially abolish, the Second Amendment. By the way, and if she gets to pick... If she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. But
0: So I heard that, I was watching the live stream,
3: and I... Had this like, rah, rah, rah. This was the headline of the week. Well, yeah, and you can see in that video, there's a guy kind of over Trump's shoulder. His jaw drops when Trump says He turns and he looks at the woman next to him, maybe his wife, and like he... You could see this guy in the, in the audience, just some random dude, reacting to it. It wasn't just journalists who, who were reacting to
1: this. CNN actually found that guy oh, yeah. and brought him on the air and interviewed him. And he is still a staunch Trump supporter, but he felt like maybe he shouldn't have said that. He said, down in the South, he says, we don't drink liquor in front of the preacher, and we don't say things like what he said out loud in public. Might be how we feel. I
2: like that characterization a lot. <laughs> Obviously – Well, we should say that Hillary Clinton has never called, as I'm sure you know, TM, for abolishing the Second Amendment. Now, she does, first of all, not something a president can do on his or her own. However, um, again, as we've talked about, often Trump talks in hyperbole. So I think what he was getting at here is that Hillary Clinton does uh, support stricter gun control regulations.
0: Okay, so he says if Hillary Clinton becomes president, she will pick her
3: judges. We won't like them. You won't be able to do anything about it. but the Second Amendment people might be able to do something about it, whatever that means, right?
1: Right. Yes. what exactly does it mean? Now, if we take this on a practical level, uh, one more Supreme Court justice could change the vote in the case most recently that really made a big impact on gun rights, the Heller case. And it was a five to four decision. And Scalia, obviously, was in the majority, and now he's no longer there. So we could be talking about that. We could also be talking about the scores and possibly even hundreds of federal judges that a president, the next president, will get, to a point and who will be adjudicating a lot of different kinds of gun cases over the years ahead. And so if there were an imputation in some people's mind, and, and I'm not saying that Donald Trump meant this, but if people received this in their own ears and minds as meaning perhaps people who have guns and believe that their right to own those guns is sacrosanct uh, beyond perhaps you know other laws... Those people might take something out on a federal judge as well as perhaps the president herself. So if you have ears to hear it in that way, and of course Donald Trump insists that wasn't his meaning, that's what you're going to take away.
0: But in the statement that his campaign put out with like lightning speed, it seemed to be indicating that he was talking about... The power of people who believe in the Second Amendment to
2: work together, team up and prevent her from getting elected. Right. They said that Second Amendment supporters have, quote, amazing spirit and are unified and will be voting for Donald Trump, not Hillary Clinton.
3: Right. But both this and the ISIS thing and, you know, innumerable other Donald Trump things that he has said that uh, could be interpreted one way or the other, though, sort of. They continue this theme, this narrative that he has constructed and that keeps going, uh, which is that if you don't like what I said, then, you know, maybe maybe you just are being too PC and maybe you're just or you're a member of the media who is bent on misinterpreting me. I meant it the way I meant it. And my supporters get it. Why don't you get it? And they it's, understand it, what I was saying, and It and Sarah.
2: De- delegitimizes critics. It de- delegitimizes the watchdog role of the media. In Absolutely. fact, that statement we were just talking about from the Trump campaign explaining those remarks, was titled Trump Campaign Statement on Dishonest Media.
0: And all of this essentially overshadowed what he, I think, wanted to be the big news of the week, which was his big speech at the Detroit Economic Club on Monday.
4: Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. He
0: used a teleprompter.
4: Thank you for the invitation to speak to you today. It's wonderful to be in Detroit. He
0: talked about his vision of the U.S. economy. Um Hillary Clinton also gave a speech about economic policy also in Michigan near Detroit today and we'll get to that a little bit later but Trump started his speech in Detroit talking about Detroit.
4: The city of Detroit is the living breathing example of my opponent's failed economic agenda.
1: The question of when Detroit started failing is, is relevant here. Uh, he strongly implied that it was NAFTA.
4: Hillary Clinton has supported the trade deals stripping this city and this country of its jobs and its wealth. She supported Bill Clinton's NAFTA. Uh,
1: which came along in the early 1990s. And uh, you know, one should ask, when did you buy your first foreign car? Was it in the 1990s? Was it more recently than that? Or conceivably was it in a decade that started with an 80s or 70s? You know, I mean,
2: well, people Ron, have been buying foreign cars for a long time. I bought my first car con. in the 90s, but <laughs> okay, let's right. just... 2002.
1: <laughs> True enough. But we had cars before that, and uh, they, yes, used to be made in Detroit. And increasingly, and over the last couple of generations, the cars we drive in America have been made in other countries, Europe, but primarily Japan and other Asian countries. And uh, those cars ate Detroit's lunch, and Donald Trump wants to suggest that uh, in some sense or another, that was all uh, something that the government did, and all something that was a result of trade with Mexico post-NAFTA.
0: Trump talked about the city's low incomes, high unemployment, high crime. He made a lot of promises to change all that. Promises like this one.
4: American Steel will send new skyscrapers soaring all over our country. We will put new American metal into the spine of this nation. It will be American hands that rebuild this country, and it will be American energy mined from American sources that powers this country.
1: And you will not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You will not crucify liberty on a cross of gold.
3: I gotta say, putting steel. Whoa, wow.
1: And I was there for that convention speech that William Jennings Bryan gave.
3: <laughs> all right, Danielle. Uh, oh, he's a joke. No, um, so, no, honestly, first of all, that steel into the spine of America, I think, is one of one of the better lines I've heard from Trump thus far. But, um, but you know, this uh, speech, giving an economic speech in Detroit, is just about the. Perfect place for Trump to do this. I mean, he's the first of all, I mean, you have this backdrop. He talks about crime in Detroit. He's the law and order candidate. He's always talking about creating law and order. And he very clearly drew that parallel. But aside from that, Detroit, like Ron said, has had some major economic problems. This really hits home on his signature economic issue, which is trade. And he, one of the big things he did in the speech, as he always does, is just railed on NAFTA and on TPP and how he thinks that they have entirely. Uh, decimated American manufacturing.
4: Only great and well-crafted trade deals where we as a country for once benefit instead of being taken advantage, instead of being taken advantage of, we are going to benefit and our workers are going to benefit or we're not going to make those deals
3: one thing that you could be easily mistaken about if you hear Donald Trump's rhetoric on trade is that, man, American manufacturing has really gone into decline. And you know what? Employment-wise, true. We we have far fewer people employed by manufacturing than we used to in the, you know, the 70s, I believe, is when it hit its peak. But if you're talking about manufacturing output, that is not at a trough. It is not at all. It is actually quite high. Because there's advanced manufacturing. Absolutely. So this is one of the big um, problems of talking about manufacturing and trade policy, which is that, you know, it, it is very sad for the manufacturing workers that have been put out of work. However, it is not true that manufacturing is, you know, in shambles. And so it's hard to talk about one while squaring it with the other. And Hillary Clinton
0: of course, is also, also talks about trade. We should just right. mention this. She says that she would renegotiate NAFTA, which is the exact same thing that Donald Trump says. Right. And she also says that she opposes the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal in its current form, which is essentially what Donald Trump says as well. Because in this speech, he said something that he has often Thank said, you. which is, I don't oppose
4: trade deals. Trade has big benefits. And I am in favor, totally in favor of trade. But I want trade deals for our country, that create more jobs and higher wages for American workers.
0: Let's, because this was a policy speech, let's dive into the policy just a little bit more. What was he proposing, Danielle? What what did we learn from this speech?
3: So a lot of the speech was, you know, boilerplate Republican uh, language in the speech. There was a lot of hitting Hillary Clinton on taxing too much. He said he would cut taxes. There was a lot of hitting Hillary Clinton and President Obama on regulations. He said he would, you know, cut regulation. He also changed the tax brackets he had previously uh, suggested from 0, 10, 20, and 25. Now he has 0, 12, 25, and 33. That 12, 25, 33, by the way, is what the House Republicans had proposed. So he changed a little bit more in line with them. And then, of course, you know, he said he would get rid of the estate tax. Many Republicans want to get rid of the estate tax. Death tax. No family
4: will have to pay the death tax. American workers. Call it the death tax. The death tax. Of course, Hillary My Clinton
0: bad. now calls it the Donald Trump friends and family tax.
4: <laughs> American workers have paid taxes their whole lives, and they should not be taxed again at death. It's just plain wrong, and most people agree with that.
1: Well, it, there is no death tax. There is no tax on death. There is an estate tax. It is paid by one out of every 500 people who die in the United States. So it appears to be a tax on their estate and not on their death. And the estate (laughs) has to be well over $5 million for an individual and nearly $11 million for a couple. So that's why so few people pay it. Because even the people who have that kind of money arrange their money in such ways that they don't expose that much of it to the estate tax. You have to have an absolutely enormous fortune before you have to pay it. One in 500 pay it.
2: And a bad accountant.
1: Yes. And and, and, and and nonetheless, it is a highly popular concept and you can get a big reaction from an audience by implying that all of us, when we die, are going to have to pay a death tax or our heirs and heiresses <laughs> will have to pay a death tax and that is simply not so.
0: Danielle, he also talked about a child care tax credit.
4: My plan will also help reduce the cost of child care by allowing parents to fully deduct the average cost of child care spending from their taxes.
0: This is something that Ivanka, his daughter, had mentioned uh, that there was going that he was going to do something to make childcare more available
3: for families. What is Donald Trump proposing? Right. So he said that he would allow families to, quote, fully deduct uh, the cost of child care on their taxes. Um, The average cost of child care, I should add, it doesn't mean you can... Go to the swankiest childcare place in your city and then just deduct all of that from your taxes. But... And this is a deduction, right? This is not a credit. Is it is a deduction, not a credit. So a deduction comes off of your taxable income. A credit comes off of your tax bill. Uh, and usually a credit is a lot more lucrative for you, the taxpayer. Well, if it's, it's refundable, yeah. It's like, refundable. yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, so there was a lot of criticism along those lines of what you're saying, Sarah, that this deduction would benefit rich people a lot more than poor people because... A lot of people at the lower end of the income spectrum, you know, those famous 47% that Mitt Romney said, 45% of households now, they do not pay federal, federal income taxes every year in part because of the EITC. So, Oh, come on. Earned
0: Income Tax Credit. This is a tax policy designed to help lower income families
3: and it is a refundable tax credit. Absolutely. So, a deduction would not help those families is kind of the point here. And so, I should add that after that, the Trump uh, campaign did send out a statement saying that they had plans to help lower income families as well. so we don't, I don't believe we have details on that. We part. have,
1: we heard on Monday a number of times the phrase will roll out in the weeks ahead. Mm-hmm. And many, many, many aspects of this plan will roll out in the weeks. It is ahead. a phrase
2: we hear quite often mm-hmm. from the Trump campaign. Right. Okay, let's
0: take a quick break. And when we get back, we will talk about Hillary Clinton's economic speech.
5: Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, LearnVest. Did you know the average indebted American household has over $16,000 in credit card debt? And 31% of Americans have zero retirement savings. The good news is LearnVest is here to help. LearnVest is redefining financial planning by making it affordable and accessible to everyday Americans. When you work with LearnVest, you tell them what you want to accomplish with your money, and they'll create a customized financial plan to help you get there. To see a financial plan and get a $50 credit, go to learnvest.com slash nprpolitics.
0: Okay, let's talk about Hillary Clinton's week. Thursday afternoon, she gave a big speech of her own in Detroit. Well, actually, it was in Warren, Michigan, nearby, about 10 miles away, also on economic policy. This was a speech that sought to portray Trump as self-interested and lacking in policy specifics. Here's a clip.
6: Based on what we know from the Trump campaign, he wants America to work for him and his friends at the expense of everyone else. He's offered no credible plans to address what working families are up against today, nothing on student loans or the cost of prescription drugs, nothing for farmers or struggling rural communities nothing to build a new future with clean energy and advanced agriculture, nothing for communities of color in our cities to overcome the barriers of systemic racism, nothing to create new opportunities for young people, just a more extreme version of the failed theory of trickle-down economics with his own addition of outlandish Trumpian ideas that even Republicans reject. To me, this speech was all about contrast. Like, she went
0: second, right? Mm -hmm. Donald Trump delivered his speech first, and she had the advantage of knowing what he said and both in tone and in substance, it was all about drawing a contrast with what Trump talked about on Monday.
2: And, and also echoing some of the themes, you know, the, she talked about, uh, you know, competition with, with jobs in China and Germany and, you know, bringing some of the technology here to increase, you know, high-tech manufacturing. She talked about, she talked about deals, right, negotiating better deals. But she even said, you know, that has to be with a, a tone, a cooperative tone. So it sort of seemed like I care about the same things, but uh, I'm going to say it a lot more nicely.
3: Right. And I mean, one of the big contrasts she she drew is she's, you know, at this she's talking about aerospace manufacturing. She's talking about advanced manufacturing, which doesn't have a nice, neat definition, but, you know, it often implies you know, three d printing, aerospace manufacturing, you know, computer modeling, that sort of thing. Whereas Donald Trump, like we said earlier, was talking about like adding metal to the spine of America. He talked about steel workers and he talked about coal miners, not exactly manufacturing, but goods producing. So they're both focusing on this goods producing part of the economy. But she seems to be saying, it's about innovation. It's about looking forward, whereas Donald Trump is talking about the manufacturing jobs of the past and how sad it is that they are gone. And wanting to bring them back. Right.
1: You know, one might even say that had Donald Trump not gone to Michigan earlier in the week and given his speech, there would have been not much reason to give this speech. There's not much new in it. She had really touched on all these points in separate times, in separate ways. But to bring it all together makes a certain amount of sense. And also, she had a chance, I think, to show off a theme that we're going to hear a lot, which is the new populist Hillary Clinton. Because Mm -hmm. the person that we have always thought of as being a bit of a moderate or a centrist, whether that's fair or not, we have thought of her that way since she ran for president in 2008. It was the way she acted as a senator to a large degree. She is now a populist. She talked about insisting on the public option in Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. Uh, That's a bridge that takes you from Obamacare to something more like a national health care plan on the Canadian model. She talked about college students in debt and making college free for many more people. She talked about paid family and medical leave. She talked about a lot of things that have been real holy grails for the left for quite some while and all on the economic scale.
0: And she used the strongest language that she has used thus far in this campaign to talk about trade, the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal.
6: My message to every worker in Michigan and across America is this. I will stop any trade deal that kills jobs or holds down wages, including the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I oppose it now, I'll oppose it after the election, and I'll oppose it as president. And Clinton
0: has to say this. She really politically has to say this because one of her political allies recently said, oh, she's just saying this now. She'll implement it. She'll likely do it when she's president. And immediately her campaign had to try to tamp that down. Mm -hmm. And we should say that... Hillary Clinton's position is not that different from Donald Trump's position on trade.
1: That's right. Right. This is one of those times when they are not working in contrast. It's not a frequent situation. But in this regard, whether it was Bernie Sanders who did it, and she did change her position some months ago when she was in the primaries, or whether it's reaction to this enormous energy that Donald Trump has unleashed, anti-trade energy in American politics, uh, she has clearly changed her position.
0: On the policy front, what else stood out to you guys?
1: Well, we haven't talked about taxes yet, and taxes is really a very large part of it. I mean, she went after him for essentially wanting to get rid of the estate tax.
6: Now, if you believe that he's as wealthy as he says, that alone would save the Trump family $4 billion. It would do nothing for 99.8% of Americans. So they'd get a $4 billion tax cut. And 99.8% of Americans would get nothing.
1: Uh, That was obviously a figure that she came up with. But other economists have said that if you get rid of the estate tax, super wealthy people are going to be the main beneficiaries. But she went back at this and went back at it again and went at it pretty hard because it was an illustration of how she saw... The Trump economic plan, as brought out earlier this week, as being largely at odds with his whole populist appeal throughout the primaries, because after talking a lot about American jobs and, and people at the lower end of the scale, people at the bottom of the pyramid, he comes out with an economic plan and specifically a tax plan, very, very good to the people at the very tip of the pyramid.
2: And we heard, I mean, you know, not just policy, or, but criticism essentially of his character, which is uh, something we're going to hear more of from Hillary Clinton and we've been hearing for a long time Uh Specifically, Trump's failure, as The Wall Street Journal and USA Today have reported, to pay workers in the past.
6: He's made a career out of stiffing small businesses from Atlantic City to Las Vegas. There are companies that were left hanging because he refused to pay their bills. A lot of those companies scraped together what they could to pay their employees And many of them put their businesses at risk, and some of them ended up taking bankruptcy. It wasn't because Trump couldn't pay them. It was because he wouldn't pay them. So, you know, just basically trying
2: to raise questions about his character. Of course, he in turn is doing the same about her. He, he, he says, you know, she doesn't have the temperament to be president. His campaign put out a statement during the speech um, saying that she didn't fulfill her promises as a senator from New York on creating jobs. So they're both trying to paint the other as, as bad for workers. But I, you kind of wonder if this is a post-issues election. This
0: is
3: a post-policy Election. I mean, I've wondered this election about you know when the when politicians come out with these policy proposals, there is little expectation I think among any of us that these exact proposals will ever actually get passed. And I wonder if that lack of expectation maybe has caused uh, policies to become untethered from reality sometimes, where a politician can say, "I'm going to make X happen." We heard about this, you know, with the "I'm going to cause four percent growth," "I'm going to I'm going to cause six percent growth," etc. Like. That's great. But it's not necessarily something you can actually make happen. So I wonder if maybe some politicians say, well, you know, it doesn't matter.
0: Hillary Clinton is like this candidate who is, oh, she's the serious policy person. She's not wild eyed. But like the reality is very few of the things she's proposing have much more political reality than, than what Bernie Sanders was proposing. Well, these
1: presence. candidates, much like Barack Obama, much like Ronald Reagan, much like Bill Clinton in the 1990s, are describing a kind of idealized future in which if you just elect me, all these great things are going to happen. And in some cases, they actually do strive towards some of those goals. The voters naturally discount the rhetoric in the, in the campaign, and they look for the goals that sound to them the best.
0: Let's move on to other Clinton news. There was other Clinton news this week. Was there? (laughs) Well, it was a little bit overshadowed by the Trump news, we will say. And that's part of the point here. Yeah. Um, So there were some newly released emails from her time as Secretary of State that at least raise questions about the relationship between the Clinton Foundation and the State Department during her time there. There were emails obtained by a conservative group called Judicial Watch through the Freedom of Information Act um, that showed, in in one case, uh, an aide to President Clinton asking Secretary Clinton's aide about getting a job for someone. There was another one uh, asking to put a donor to the Clinton Foundation in contact with a policy person at the State Department.
1: And so one is expected to use one's imagination to extrapolate from that that there must have been lots and lots and lots and lots of communications between these people about getting lots of people jobs and getting lots of people together for special meetings and special briefings and who knows what else. Maybe they actually got into policy. Maybe people who gave millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation during the years the Clintons were out of office uh, or at least when Bill Clinton was out of office and before she was Secretary of State got some kind of special favors. And these emails kind of give you a little ammunition for thinking that, but they don't close the loop quite, so we're waiting to see what other evidence there may be.
0: Yeah, and of course, then you, you call the Clinton campaign and say, what's up with these emails? And they say, well, one was like a kid who had been working on the campaign, and they were hoping to get him a, a similar job at the State Department, and the Clintons knew him well. And then the other one was, yes, he was a donor, but he's been friends with the Clintons for a
2: really long time, and he never actually was put in touch with the policy person. The thing that I have trouble sorting through with all of this is just, you know, how How much of this is sort of par for the course in Washington, whether that's good or bad? How much of it is sort of just the way things tend to work? I mean, how how does if we could scrutinize any other politician, politician X? Would it be the same? Would it be worse?
1: Yeah, but it's also desensitizing, if if I take your point, that that we've heard so much about things of this nature that, that each fresh revelation does not necessarily constitute a fresh cut. But we should be very careful in saying, you know, this is just how business is done in Washington. It may well be just how business is done in Washington, and maybe it's nowhere near the worst. But that does not sound good to the average American voter. It sounds like the problem.
2: And voters are fed... I mean, voters will tell you all the time they are fed up with the way things are done in Washington. Mm -hmm. Another piece of
0: weirdness from earlier this week involving the Clinton campaign was that at one of her rallies in Florida, seated behind her was the father of the Orlando nightclub shooter, which is just mind-boggling. Just when
2: this year can't get any weirder. I mean, it's
0: just bizarre. And I don't know... The campaign insists, we should say, that this was a public rally, open, 3,000 people attended, and that they had no idea that this dude was in the crowd. And if they had known, I don't know what they would have done about it. But later, uh, Clinton's spokesman said that Hillary Clinton disavows his views. He was spotted by
2: a local news reporter there.
1: And by the way, this father has been controversial in his own right. He's talked about all the different ways he's felt about ISIS, the Taliban, uh, you know, the conflict between Islam and the West.
0: He was pro-Taliban.
1: At one time. He ran
2: for president of Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. but from America, and he was pro-Taliban. That's correct. So, So Trump's campaign jumped on this, although admittedly it got drowned out for a couple of days by the whole Second Amendment supporter discussion. But, you know, this was a talking point the campaign was stressing. Why was Mateen there? Will Hillary Clinton disavow him? And then this week when Trump himself was in Florida, he got up and started talking about this.
4: You think you have the best location, right? And you do in one way. But the people behind me, they're all on television. They're going to be famous. They're going to be famous. They're going to be famous. And by the way, speaking of that, wasn't it terrible when the father of the animal that killed the wonderful people in Orlando was sitting with a big smile on his face right behind Hillary Clinton. And by the way, including a lot of the people here, how many of you people know me? A lot of you people know me. When you get those seats, you sort of know the campaign. So when she said, Well, we didn't know, he knew, they knew. He
2: he said these people are gonna be are gonna be well known. Well, one of them already is.
0: Ron, you know this story well. Tell us about the person who was seated behind Donald Trump. Well a rally.
1: face a face that was already famous in that particular group of people was Mark. Foley, who had been a congressman, a young congressman, in not too long ago. And in 2006, uh, a lot of uh, messaging that he was doing with a lot of the mail pages uh, became quite a scandal on Capitol Hill and led to his uh, the end of his political career and also was a rather major contributor to the negative publicity that led to the Republicans losing control of the House that year. It was really quite a flood of different issues, of course, but this was kind of the the last straw for the Republicans in 2006. And so for many, many Republicans in in Florida and elsewhere, Mark Foley is about as persona non grata as you can get.
0: Though Foley says that he's known Trump for 30 years. So there you go. So, okay, here is the bigger issue with this, Ron. And you wrote about this this week. Hillary Clinton may have a few bad headlines, But Donald Trump has a remarkable ability to drown out even her bad headlines.
1: Here's one way to look at it. There is something really uniquely vivid about the way Donald Trump steals the spotlight. The media cannot resist Donald Trump, and that was a huge boon for him for the past year, huge frustration for all the other Republican candidates. They just couldn't break through. Now we have passed the conventions. We're into August, and to more or less everyone's surprise, Donald Trump continues to, in some almost inexplicable way, dominate every news cycle, even when there's strong reason to think that we should be talking about Hillary Clinton and some of her problems. Her problems are a little complicated. They have to do with emails sent a few years ago. They're not visual. You can't see it all on videotape. And yet up against that, you have Donald Trump saying something that a lot of people are finding outrageous and another something and then another something that a lot of people are finding outrageous. Which of those things is going to dominate on cable television news?
0: Okay, let's take one more quick break. We'll be right back with Listener Mail and Can't Let It Go.
5: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that makes shopping effortless and fun for busy women on the go. Complete your personal style quiz and then schedule a date to receive your first personalized shipment. There's no subscription required. Your stylist will send you five hand-selected pieces of clothing delivered right to your door. Buy what you want and send the rest back. Shipping is easy and free both ways. To get started, visit stitchfix.com. That's S T I T C H F I X dot com.
0: All right, let's answer some mail and uh, want to give a big thanks to all of you who wrote in with food recommendations. Beer recommendations and stories after our food politics episode earlier this week. Sam definitely knows where to find a good Cuban sandwich now. And we all know for sure that the singular form of tamales is tamal. Okay, first question from a listener in Wisconsin.
5: Hey, NPR politics folks. Um, my name is John Merfeld. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. I had a quick question about demographic voting statistics because, I mean, because. Like, when I hear a stat of, like, Romney won white women 57% or whatever, like, how do we know that? I mean, I voted, and nowhere on the ballot did it say, please put yourself into a demographic uh, group. Just how does that work? Okay.
1: Love the show. Bye. Excellent question. Many people wonder this and have for years. What By what magic do we come up with those numbers? And the simple answer is exit polls. For a number of years now, uh, really beginning in the 80s at the level that we have it now, there has been extensive investment in polling people coming out of their polling places on election day, and we get all this demographic information from them at that time. And while the initial numbers that they put out are not always predictive early in the day of who will win that election, which is, of course, the reason people are so eager to hear, but over the next several days, they weight all these results, they blend all the results, and For all we know, and of course this can be flawed, this is pretty much the best political science data we have on who voted and why.
0: All right, next question question? from Pennsylvania.
1: Hi, this is Peter Santoscano in Sunbury, Pennsylvania. Sam Sanders insists that you all like getting voice messages, so here goes. We do. Tamara Keith is covering the Clinton campaign.
5: Don Gagne, I think, is traveling with the Trump campaign. My question is...
1: What's the difference? I mean, like, what's the experience of covering one over the other? What kind of access are you getting? How is the travel different? And has Tamara recovered from the bus trip?
3: (laughs) Super fan.
0: Yeah, well, I have not recovered from the bus trip. Uh, I still feel terrible about myself because I still haven't eaten enough vegetables to compensate for that bus trip. But Sarah McCammon, you cover the Trump campaign. Yes, you're and our are... colleague Don
2: Gagné bounces around back and forth. But yeah. I, yeah, I cover Trump. You cover Hillary Clinton. And uh, So what is it like? I think there are similarities and differences, right? I mean, sometimes when you're covering the campaign, you are on your own. You are booking your own flights with the help of our lovely producers. You are finding a rental car, getting to the site yourself. Other times you're in a press charter, which can be a plane. It can be a bus. <laughs> Or and, a very tiny bus with no bathroom. Or that. And, and and that is basically, it's almost like you're a little mini prisoner in summer camp. Somebody's, you know, <laughs> somebody's shuttling <laughs> you around and telling you where to go. And, you, you, you know, you can't really escape. I think the question is about access. The question's about access. Well, I can tell you, with the Trump campaign, you seldom know where Mr. Trump is going to be until quite shortly before he is there. Sometimes late the week before, sometimes the day before.
0: So much like Trump... Hillary Clinton is on her own plane. Often uh, a press aide of some kind will travel with us, sometimes a relatively senior press aide, sometimes not. And then sometimes she does do gaggles. It doesn't happen a lot. Uh, but, for instance, on the bus tour, she stopped and took a bunch of questions, maybe Eight or nine questions from reporters,
2: but we can't. I can say that Mike Pence recently on his plane, on his press plane, which I was not on, did the old orange roll trick. Did you all hear about this? No, no. This is the trick where I guess classic campaign reporting trick where you write a question on an orange, roll it to the front of the press bus or plane, and they answer it, roll it back, you know, what? write on it with a pen. Yeah, my my friend uh, Von Hilliard from NBC News wrote a question about uh what's your favorite Sixpence None the Richer song. Rolled it down. Pence picked it up because Pence was on the plane with with these reporters, and I can't remember the name of the song he wrote down. I just know it was not "Kiss Me." Um, and rolled it back. So <laughs> who
3: knows high another tech. Sixpence Done the Richer song than "Kiss Me"? I don't.
2: Well, uh, but, who knows one? I but, don't even. I've never heard of but this. It's, cons- it's remarkable how high tech
1: song. has taken over communication. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Mike Pence is a conservative Christian. Sixpence and the Richer is a Christian band. So, mm. oh, there you go. He would know. But okay, yeah, they turned pop. They turned pop.
1: Oh, that's when they got into kissing. I guess.
2: Okay, guys, guys, guys. <laughs> so maybe someday we will get to maybe someday we will get to ask Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump a question on an orange. Maybe even about music. Oh, a girl
0: can dream. A girl can dream. <laughs> okay, that's the mail, which means it's time for can't let it go, where we all share one thing we can't stop thinking about this week,
2: politics or otherwise. Sarah. Okay, I just want to start by referring back to um, something I hear from Donald Trump over and over and over and over
4: again at political rallies. We've been on the cover of Time Magazine so much, it becomes routine. You know, Time Magazine, a couple of weeks ago, they did a cover story that this is a movement. This isn't me, I'm a messenger. Now you have to say, we've been on the cover of Time Magazine many, many times, (laughs) and it's really about the movement. We've been on the cover of Time Magazine many, many times. In the last
2: short He loves magazine covers. Wow. Time magazine in particular. And have you guys seen the cover of Time magazine this week? Yes. That's coming out. It is a melting orange face. I believe it says meltdown. Yeah. Well, Trump, yeah, Trump is once again on the cover of Time magazine, guys. But this is probably not the kind of cover of Time magazine that, that he likes to tout. He, it is indeed his face, a cartoon Trump melting. And it does say. Meltdown. Meltdown. Uh, so I'm just going to be fascinated to see whether or not the cover of Time magazine comes up again
3: in the weeks to come. All right, Danielle. All right. This is uh, obliquely related to politics. It is politics. It's just not contemporary politics. Uh, I've fallen in love with a (laughs) podcast, uh, not an NPR podcast, called Revolutions. You're seeing
1: another podcast?
3: Oh, Danielle. Oh, God. I feel like such a terrible person. I'm feeling
0: jilted. Oh, my
1: God.
3: So it's a podcast called Revolutions. Each season, they do a different historical revolution. As a person who most definitely literally fell asleep very often in history class, I am very pleased to be finally learning the history that, you know, went in one ear and out the other in high school. Um, I'm currently only on the second season. It's on the American Revolution. So, you know, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I I highly recommend it for, you know, people who want to catch up on their history or who are just, you know, history super fans. Sweet.
1: That is excellent. Okay, back to Trump. So, uh, (laughs) my click this week is that. We have the most wonderful new metaphor uh, for this year in the young man whose name is apparently uncertain and not even you know, really been officially established, 20-year-old man from Virginia who became the most famous person in America for a while, one afternoon this week, by climbing up the outside of the Trump Tower. And he uh, he didn't get all the way, but he got a remarkable distance up the side of the building while for two hours All the cable news stations and lots of local television stations, and everybody else was just broadcasting his progress up the side of the building where he was hoping to get all the way to the top and get a chance to meet Donald Trump.
0: He was using suction cups. This is important.
1: Yes. And he would fix another one and go up a handhold and a foothold. And it was fascinating to watch.
5: That's impressive.
1: It was also impressive to see how well-prepared the New York PD was for this. They had the <laughs> emergency folks. They kept taking serious sections of window out and talking to him and talking to him. And, gee, how do you get those to work? And what can we do to help you? And then eventually grabbing him and pulling him in one of the windows
0: okay so ron why is this a metaphor
1: it's a metaphor because of the way it was so powerfully visual and completely without any real content i mean it really didn't <laughs> mean anything but the power of watching him do this for a couple of hours mesmerized the nation
2: if i climb up trump tower with suction cups do you think he would finally give me an interview
1: i think at, at this point it's been done
2: it's been done <laughs> yeah uh, yeah That's something else
0: how about you tam also related to Donald Trump. He dominates even our can't let it goes, We just can't let go. Um, so this week he got some new props for his rallies.
4: But you know what I did? I did something a little bit different. I wanted to put some things down, but I don't want to go through the big deal of screens and hanging. Look at this place. It's this big arena. You can't really hang screens. So I said, let's do it the old fashioned way. I'll do some cards, right? I'll just, so I had some cards right
0: yeah so he had um, like lots of charts and things printed up on like big poster boards You mean like he went to Kinko's okay. or something well somebody probably did go to Kinkos yeah it sounds
1: like Ross Perot
0: <laughs> you know who else it sounds like every member of Congress, Congress. all the senators with
1: their, <laughs> with their floor
0: charts oh, my and there there actually is a a Twitter account and a website devoted entirely to floor charts in the House and Senate. <laughs> and and last Why night, I as I was watching Donald Trump's speech, and he got out all of these charts. Mm. And the best part is, Donald Trump really loves his charts.
4: Look at this card. So this is President Obama has commuted the sentences of more men and women in the past than the past nine presidents combined. Now look at the line on top. See? How you doing? Isn't this better than hanging a screen? What the hell? <laughs> and I save a couple of bucks. Not so bad. Huh? <laughs> really? You save money? By, I thought
2: a screen would... Oh, maybe the screen would cost money. But if you already had the screen, that's free. That's no paper. Anyway. <laughs> I don't do this for a living. <laughs> All right. That's it for this week.
0: As always, you can catch more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org. Uh, we, this week, have fact checks of both the Clinton speech and the Trump speech on the economy. We've been working hard on them. Please go check them out. And if you're missing our daily episodes from the conventions, we do produce daily content. It's on the radio every day. That <laughs> thing. And you can stream it on the interwebs. You NPR can NPR One. It. There are mm-hmm. lots of ways to get our content. Uh, or listen to it all in the Election Essential section of the NPR One app. And thanks for sending your questions and comments to NPRpolitics at NPR.org. Record a voice memo of your questions and you might just hear it on the podcast. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter.
1: And I'm Ron Elbing, editor-correspondent.
0: And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.